Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the ATS podcast. Um, today, we have a wonderful group of people joining me to discuss issues that are related to our careers as faculty members, um, particularly as they pertain to our positions as people from underrepresented minority groups. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Early Career Professionals Working Group, part of the Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation Assembly. I'd like to also thank the Health Equity and Diversity Committee um, at the American Thoracic Society, uh, and Dinah Four, who is um, co-hosted or co-sponsored this event with me. Today, I'll be your host. My name is Stephanie levinsky Desir. I am Assistant Professor of Pediatrics in the Department of Pulmonary Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. And I'm joined today by Chantal Spencer, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics, also in Pediatric Pulmonar Pulmonary Division at the Mount Sinai ICANN School of Medicine. We also have with us today, Erica Ferrand, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. And we have a more senior member of our team here today, Christian Bimmy, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine also at the University of Arizona. So welcome everyone and thank you for joining us today. I'd like to open the discussion to talk just a little bit about our own personal experiences and paths into medicine. So I think I'll start with you, Erica. Could you share a little bit with us about your personal journey through um, your career here in medicine and you know, who inspired you, what inspired you to be a physician? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about if you feel like your experience might be might have been a little bit different than some of your peers who did not share the same cultural backgrounds as you have. Thank you for having me and, and thank you for that question. You know, I, my parents were uh, public school educators in Newark, New Jersey. And so they emphasized from the very beginning, the importance of service. And so that was sort of a core motivating factor for me to get to medicine. And so one of the tenets of that, I think, was my mother often saying to me, you know, you need to leave it better than you found it. And often I would think that that was a euphemism for me to make my bed or do the dishes. And sometimes in all, all honesty, it was, but most of the time she was trying to make a bigger point. And for me, I, I took that and ran with it and initially thought my path was going to be through politics. Um, and I got my first job out of undergraduate was in the United States Senate where I worked as a legislative assistant. And I was interested in sort of making my mark by defining healthcare policy and ultimately went to medical school because I wanted to understand, better understand the context for those policies and how they played out. But along the way, fell in love with patient care and decided, you know, actually, this is where I'm going to focus right now on being a doctor. And my parents were completely unfamiliar with either of those, you know, career paths and did not have specific advice to provide for me on how to be successful. But you know, I think their core, core advice still was applicable, which was one, that it takes a village. So I needed to find mentorship and sponsorship and that there was no shame in asking for help. And so I, I relied on that advice, but it, I faltered many times. You know, it often felt like my peers had this map or script that they were following on their path for success. And I was just flying blind. And I think I, I tried to make sense of that by finding sanctuary and support from peers. But in reflecting on my medical training, I think it was really mired by frustration and exhaustion. And when I think back to the source of that, I think it, you know, honestly, a lot of it came from the added cognitive and emotional weight of both learning the content that I was there for and also constantly feeling like I was needing to justify that I deserve to be there, that my presence, that the space and the place that I occupied, that they were earned. And I think once I sort of identified that source of frustration, I could get targeted support and it has been a game changer. I can totally relate to that. My, um, my parents actually were immigrants to this country and neither of my parents actually graduated from college. So I'm the first physician in our family. And I think sort of navigating the path of 
you know, where's the script that you're supposed to follow to know? I, I didn't even know like how long medical school was or residency and fellowship and all of the various steps afterwards and kind of plowing through and paving that path sort of on your own without a lot of the support. A lot of our peers might have also experienced that, but there's some uniqueness to, to being in my position, I sort of feel like the token black woman in many situations. And that adds like another layer um, of sort of navigating or trailblazing that path. How about you, Chantal? Can you share with us a little bit about your path to medicine? Yeah, sure. So um, thanks also for having me today. I'm excited to um, join, you know, my peers and having this like really important discussion. But I have to piggyback off of what both of what you and Erica said. You know, I also, my parents are both immigrants. Uh, my mom graduated from college, my dad did not. And growing up, it, it was, education was emphasized like really strongly in my family. It was emphasized that I was going to college and, you know, I was always good at science. And so my parents kind of, they were really, they really did want me to go into medicine. It was important and you know i felt like i would make my family proud but once i went to college and started getting more medical exposure that i really make the decision but you know just to take a step back when you know i grew up in a predominantly black you know latino and caribbean community and so i think i was kind of protected from having um, any like personal experiences with racism i knew it existed and i would hear about it and I, my parents talked to me about it and my brothers about it but it wasn't until i got to college <laughs> Um, I went to Cornell that I really start like experiencing the microaggressions and the comments. And around the time I went to college in 2000, I think affirmative action was still pretty new. And so it was something that people talked about all the time. Like, oh, you're just here because of affirmative action. And so that's when I started feeling like I didn't belong for the first time. And because of that, I struggled a lot in college because I was afraid to ask questions, afraid to get help because I felt like I didn't belong when that just wasn't the case. So I struggled through my first and second year taking all these like hard, difficult science class classes. I just wasn't asking for help and getting, you know, the proper like studying techniques that I needed. So I really struggled. And then third and fourth year, I did great. But because of that, I did not get into medical school the first time around. So when I applied to medical school, I did not get in. So I did a postgrad program at, at Georgetown. And that postgrad program was life-changing for me because I was able to finally find mentors. I started, you know, getting the help that I needed and understanding how to study properly. And then I like soared through medical school. Medical school was easy for me compared to college. And most people don't say that because like I struggled so much in college because I just was afraid to ask for help. It wasn't until medical school that I just learned, I just need to ask for help and it's okay. It doesn't mean that I'm less than, it doesn't mean that I'm not smart enough. You know, the material is difficult. And if you don't ask questions, you'll never master it. And so it wasn't until medical school that I start kind of feeling more comfortable just being me and understanding that you need to ask for help. And that's what my peers are doing. That's what my white peers are doing. They were asking for help and getting the resources they needed to succeed. And so I think once I got into residency and fellowship, it was a priority for me to ask for help, to find mentors, because things just became so much easier when I realized that there's this wealth of knowledge from people that have done it already that I could use to make my life so much easier. Because I couldn't ask my, my family, my parents, I, no one else in my family was a doctor. And so now I think looking back, I just wish I did that from the beginning. I wish I felt confident enough to like ask for help earlier on. And so, you know, that's something that I talk to a lot of medical students and college students now, like find a mentor early, even if they don't look like you, just find someone that's been down this road um, to help guide you and, and, and answer your like hard or easy questions, because I think that was really critical for me. I think you touched on something that hits home and that's the concept of imposter syndrome. I think when I realized what imposter syndrome was and I like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I feel all the time. You know, even you say med school was easy for you. It was not easy for I mean, it wasn't, it was easier than college. Let me, let me backtrack. It was not easy, but it was easier than college. Cause I just struggled so much in college. I think partly unnecessarily. Yeah. I didn't have the same struggles in medical school because I just had help. I hear you. Yeah, I remember sitting in the classroom thinking, 
they're going to figure out that I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> Someone's going to catch me <laughs> and recognize that this is not, you know, like they're going to kick me out at some point. And it's taken so much time. And I tell you, I even now still struggle with this, you know, in the circles that I'm in, when I'm in a meeting, when I'm in a room, and I think I'm constantly surveying and thinking, you know, why did they invite me to be here? Why did they pick me? What is my expected role and contribution? And I think in some ways that sort of weighs you down and it doesn't give you the opportunity to be as free and, you know, your natural self because you're constantly, you know, navigating this path of, of you know, self-doubt, imposter syndrome. So I want to turn to Christian and hear a little bit about your path and as someone who's a little bit more senior to us in terms of your academic achievements, maybe you can share with us sort of how you've made it to where you are. Thank you, Stephanie. And uh, thank you, uh, Erica and Chantel, for sharing your experience. So my path is a little interesting because I came here, my formative years were obviously in Africa, in Cameroon. And the perspective from growing up in Africa and coming to the United States as an immigrant are quite different from what you all probably experience. Appears all your parents were immigrants, and so you could relate to an extent, but I leave that immigrant experience uh, coming to the United States uh, as a grown-up. And I can tell you that the transition from being in a society that is mostly homogeneous and feeling quite normal to suddenly being in the minority is quite unique and interesting. And uh, being an immigrant adds to the complexity. And that is how I ended up in the United States. Uh, but I've always been comforted by, you know, what my dad always told me. And he made a point. He, my dad was, you know, a college graduate. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I was the first to go to, to medical school. But my family was uh, made up of very highly educated brothers and sisters. Just because of the nature of, you know, post-colonial uh, Africa, most of those countries were emphasizing education a lot. And so most people valued education. And my dad always uh, emphasized this point about, you know, making sure that you maintain, you know, your uniqueness uh, because everyone uh, is defined by an assortment of stories that surround them. And we all have our different realities. So even coming out of a context that was, you know, mostly homogeneous, I appreciated the differences in each and everyone back then. And so going through a medical school, uh, you know, for me, uh, I, maybe bolstered by my, you know, understanding. Uh, so just a little background, Cameroon is a bilingual country. And so there's an English speaking minority and a French speaking minority. And being a, an English speaking person growing up in Cameroon, I already kind of learned how to navigate some of those complexities. So although I said we're uniquely similar, uh, there were some subtle differences that you can tell. And so you learn to deal with that. Uh, but, you know, I've always been driven by, you know, the words uh, of, uh, you know, most of, I mean, it's, 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 it's cliche in Africa, but I think uh, this author, her name is uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She puts it very well when she talks about the danger of a single story, uh, that it creates stereotypes. Uh, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, uh, but that they are incomplete. And so it makes one story become the only story. So as we listen to each other here, you can tell that if, we, if one were to look at all four of, four of us, they'll make assumptions about how we've come to be. Uh, but we are all uh, uniquely different, even though we share something that is profoundly deep and common. So that is how I have navigated, uh, you know, going through, uh, you know, residency and fellowship and then choosing a pathway of academia. And one of the tenets that guide me very well, I think you touched on uh, that uh, briefly, uh, Chantal, was, you know, so seeking out not just mentors, but actually sponsors, whoever they may be. That is the first step, especially if you are the first in your family to navigate this route. You need somebody that is going to guide you through. And without that, it becomes very challenging to overcome certain uh, barriers because for those who already know the path, it's a lot easier. You know uh, when to prepare for the MCAT, you know what books to read. Well, if you've never done it, you don't know. And if somebody doesn't guide you, then it becomes even more challenging. 
Uh, so seeking those sponsors or mentors, uh, but preferably sponsors, uh, is uh, very important. The other thing is to always remember uh, not to feel like you are a victim. I'm sure that all of us are here today because we're able to overcome that huddle of feeling like a victim. It is very, very, very important to realize that those of us who have made it this far, we are lucky uh, to have gone through this complex world and be spared from some of the challenges that other people were unlucky uh, not to overcome. And so I always remember that I'm not a victim. Uh, I'm actually the lucky uh, one or the lucky few who have made it. And that carries you through a lot of challenges that we all face. And so, you know, the last thing that has taken me this far is always remembering that I'm a walking billboard, whether I like it or not. And it's not a billboard for just me. It's a billboard for everyone that looks like me, everyone that sounds like me, everyone that has my background. And I wear that as a badge of honor. And therefore, every time I step into a meeting, I just remember when I look at a billboard, do I like it or not? And do I want to be the billboard that looks good? And so it just takes me, you know, day by day uh, or, or across the hurdles that I might uh, face. Uh, one thing that I would touch on, which actually was really helpful, I did my residency in Detroit. And uh, in Detroit, the majority of the custodians or the people who work in the hospitals uh, in the non-provider uh, capacity are Black. And uh, I made it a point to always acknowledge all of them at a very deep level. And, you know, I got the same response back. And that was critically important because, you know, we are human and that connection makes your job worthwhile. And so uh, this is just some of the tools that I have used to get to this point. And, you know, as we talk uh, more, I, I could share some of the, you know, the deeper connections that I've made in terms of seeking out the right sponsors uh, and, you know, overcoming some of those challenges that we all face. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. I love that last point that you just made. And it reminds me of, um, in some ways, sort of like, the pros or the benefits of being, you know, that person of color that is walking around in the hospital with the white coat and the stethoscope or who can interact with the family. And as a pediatrician, I have a patient who can look at me and say, wow, this person looks like me. And sort of being able to connect with people on that level um, is a source of great pride for me. And I feel Oftentimes, that's like one of the bonuses I have to my job, especially being uh, someone who works in an urban setting in Washington Heights and um, caring for many people of color. Um, but on the flip side of that, I also thought about something you mentioned, and it's sort of this concept of feeling like you have to be the voice for the entire race. Right. So people, when you're one of a few, people turn to you constantly to answer all of these questions. And my lived experience, as you clearly mentioned, Christian, is quite different than yours or Chantal's or Erica's. And this concept of intersectionality and how we all bring something different to the table, even if the shade of our skin or our complexion is similar, um, is one that's, I think, really important for people to acknowledge. I um, wanted turn it over to Erica and hear a little bit about sort of your experience in, you know, walking through the hospital or the, the academic institution where you work. And maybe you can share with us some personal examples of sort of how it feels or what it feels like to be a person who's not necessarily in the majority, who's in the minority uh, in the settings in where you work. Certainly. I mean, Stephanie, your comments about feeling like the only and needing to speak for a group of people when really what you can speak for is your own lived experience uh, really resonated. I mean, I joined, I'm very new to the role. I have been uh, assistant professor for a little, little over a year, so I am still very much learning the ropes. But I joined a division in which there is one Black woman and no Black men in over 80 people. And that is reflective of our Department of Medicine. You know, so there is, there is just not a critical mass. I, I have an exceptional senior mentor and sponsor and role model in my division. And she's also sort of a legend in ATS, Michelle Johnson, who I could not 
speak more highly of, but I don't have, it's, I can't go to her for everything. And so there's this challenge of really feeling siloed and isolated and certainly feeling, I think the pressure um, and the weight of the minority tax. I mean, that is real, especially over the last six months when there has been, you know, an awakening at best or a lot of pressure really on institutions to address institutional racism. And all of a sudden there are statements and there are committees and task forces. And when there's just not a lot of people to do that work, you have a lot of requests. And I think there's, for me, the challenge has been that I feel as a faculty member that I have a degree of safety and security and responsibility in this role to really use my position to advocate for change and to impact the makeup and the priorities of our division and our department. And so I wanna do that work, right? But that work takes time and effort. So, you know, in, in sort of preparing for this discussion, I was reflecting on the things that I'm doing right now, right? I am co-chair of the Women in Pulmonary Group. I just chaired a search for the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for our division, and now I'm acting as an advisor to that role. I'm a, in the mentoring, uh, mentoring program for underrepresented in medicine my, uh, medical students. I am, I was a faculty facilitator for a DEI session for incoming fellows and I sit on the fellowship selection committee. That is service, right? But none of that service or all of that service is undervalued in my academic promotion. So it's all being done on top. It does not count in my percentage, uh, you know, of activities and it is a lot. You know, I feel like I need to do it to get fulfillment out of my job and my role, but I also, need for that work to be valued um, and respected within the within the institution. And there's a lot of work to be done to make that happen. I hear you. I feel like lately in the last several um, months or so, I often have been approached by people to be served as their mentor. And it's always a struggle, especially when it's a woman or as a person of color, because I really feel like it's my job to pay it forward. But when you were one of few and you get tapped all the time, when's the time that I to work on the stuff that actually is going to get you promoted, you know? So I hear you, Erica, and that's a lesson. Maybe Christian can share with us a little bit about how you've navigated that balance of the minority tax and how, you know, to prioritize the things that will get you promoted uh, while still feeling like you're doing the service work that you're passionate about and that, you know, um, that you're called to do. Absolutely. Like I mentioned earlier, it is challenging because on the one hand, you know, it is always satisfying to play that role and embrace it and, and serve. But at the same time, the rules are the rules and the conditions for promotion apply to everybody. And so when that time comes, no one is going to look at your dossier and give you extra points for the work that doesn't count. And that is the, the challenge of being, you know, the only one or being the first one. There's a book that I've uh, read almost every month when I, you know, think about these challenges. The challenges is by uh, uh, Kerry Ann Rockmore and uh, Tracy uh, Lasloffy. It's uh, the Black Academic's Guide to Winning Tenure Without Losing Your Soul. And it's an amazing book. It really highlights a lot of the challenges that we talk about here, but in a way that, you know, it's almost a step-by-step, -step, you know, guide to overcome the hurdles that uh, lay in the way. And, you know, it tells you, how to say no, when to say no, how to seek the right sponsor. I emphasize on the word sponsor, not just a mentor. Because if you have the right sponsor, then that sponsor would know when to shield you from some of those overtaxing committee assignments. The sponsor would know when to highlight a certain aspect of your work. Uh, when to promote you to be part of a certain guidelines committee that would enhance visibility and possibly contribute to growth. Uh, they will know how to get you to the right grant mechanism 
and so on and so forth. And that is critically important. The question then becomes, where do you get the mentors? Do you seek out the mentors that look exactly like you? Well, there's not enough of them. We just talked about that. But the good news is that there are many mentors who are not like us, who are willing and ready to help. I've been very lucky to have the most incredible mentors through my fellowship uh, and now as a junior faculty member and then transitioning to seniority. My mentors go above and beyond. So I was was partly lucky, but I was also smart to seek out the ones who actually support me. So uh, along the way, I have rejected people who stepped up because I realized that they weren't going to be sponsors. And I said, no, I will not work with you. In fact, I did a transition in my research from you know, uh, asthma research uh, to translational basic research in lung injury because of mentorship. It was a drastic move, but I had to do it because if I hadn't, I would not be where I am. And so sometimes you have to have the courage to do that. And it's not unique to us in a way. It's just that the hurdles are much more challenging to overcome. Uh, for us, uh, A, because of our background being often the only one, being the first person in the family to go through this and not having all the answers. Uh, but also, you know, some of the unique challenges of isolation, uh, alienation, uh, excessive visibility, right? I mean, you're visible, everybody can see you. You're the only junior uh, uh, faculty of color in a division of 80. Well, everybody can see that. And so you stick out. Uh, there are challenges in terms of persistent negative stereotypes about certain groups of people. And if you belong to that group, what does it say when certain statistics are discussed in a way that may, may be derogatory, right? How do you feel if we constantly talk about lung function and Black people are supposed to have poor lung function? How do you feel when constantly statistics are discussed and black people are the ones who always have the worst outcomes. How are you supposed to be proud to be a black person, right? Well, those are microaggressions that people take for granted. And what is interesting is that those things become ingrained in our brains, right? We absorb them because that's the culture we live in. And so uh, some of these uh, challenges are there, but at the same time with the right mentor or sponsor, uh, you can skillfully navigate them. It never goes away, I can tell you. If anything, it gets more challenging the higher you go because the stakes are a lot higher. Uh, When you're a junior person, the mentor or the sponsor is trying to help you, but at some point you become a competitor and so it doesn't get any easier, I can tell you that. So just in general terms, those are some of the ways uh, that, you know, I go through this, you know, first and foremost is to get the right mentor uh, in the right program and then uh, learn to say no and focus on what the rules are. Uh, what are the conditions to uh, get tenure or get promoted uh, based on your track and focus on that because the, 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 the most important thing that you need uh, are to get those grants, to get those papers. Uh, and obviously the other service requirements to get promoted. So you have to zero in on those goals, no matter what. I'd like to hear from Chantal too about your experience, both with mentorship and sponsorship at your institution and sort of how you've tapped into the people who were there to kind of help you along your path. Well, I think I had a, a unique experience. Um, the When I was finished with fellowship, so let me let me back up. During residency, when I decided to go into pulmonary, the division chief at that time, Dr. Vicencio, he actually left LIJ Cohen's, which is where I was doing residency, and came to Mount Sinai. So during my fellowship, he was at Mount Sinai, and he continued to mentor me throughout fellowship, um, and we kept in touch. And so when I was looking for a job, um, I interviewed at multiple institutions, and but when he offered me a job, it was like a no-brainer for me. I'm going to go back to Sinai so I can start my career with my mentor. Um, and that was a re- one of, I think, the best decisions I made because having him as my division chief and 
my mentor, he has been instrumental in the early, the first five years of my career and helping me make sure that I am on track for promotion because I'm, I'm not a, a researcher. I'm on like a clinical educator's track, which can be a little bit more gray in terms of how to get promoted. And so he has been so supportive and encouraging and given me so much opportunities within the institution to be able to stay on track and, and made other connections um, for me to help to find other mentors within Mount Sinai. So I think my experience has been unique, um, but I will say that the pediatrics department fortunately has four other women of color that are in leadership positions, four other female physicians, yeah, that are, that are in leadership positions. So I've also been able to lean on them and be able to uh, get advice from them. So I think I'm fortunate in the sense where I have peers and mentors within pediatrics that either look like me or have decided to be just super supportive of my career at Sinai. And so I think my, my experience is a little bit unique, but I will say that I understand that, you know, a lot of times we get asked to do so many things and that's what I still struggle with, finding time to do it all because I haven't mastered the art of saying no yet. Um, when someone asks me to do something, my philosophy has always been say yes, you know, and take the opportunity and then decide if it's, you know, not going to, to work for you because I would hate to miss an opportunity. And that's probably not a sustainable way <laughs> to, um, to work for a long time. And so I'm still trying to figure out what, you know, how to prioritize, how to prioritize the things that are going to help with promotion and how to prioritize the things that may not help for promotion, but I think are important for, for my community and for trainees that look like me and, and, that are, and that's rewarding. So I'm still trying to figure out how to navigate um, that kind of balance with, within my career. And so I'm, I'm actually like listening to all of your responses to hoping you guys could help, um, but I think it's, it's, it's difficult. I think both Chantal and Christian talk about um, the concept of the mentor that doesn't necessarily look like you. Um, and I've had similar experiences. And um, while I think it's great, I've had a phenomenal mentor who actually does look more like me, who I go to for you know more life experience type of um, uh, advice. I think it, the concept of sort of building out a, a network or a mentoring team is really important to growth in academia. Um, and I think it goes back to also what Erica mentioned about sort of tapping that one person all the time as a mentor, you can't go to that one person for everything. So if you can round out your team and have a variety of mentors or people to kind of guide you through, but also people, sponsors, like Christian mentioned, to sort of promote your work and know which opportunities are the one you should go after. Um, I think that's been at least one approach that I found um, to work well for me. I want to turn, I'm going to ask this next question to Erica first. I want to turn to a little bit to sort of what are, what do we feel are things that, practical things that we could see happening at our institutions that could change the climate around racism? And, you know, when we think about it, I always think of it as two issues, right? There's the whole issue of diversity and inclusion and how do I fit in and how do I feel good and feel welcome and embraced in this environment um, and like my personal work is valued. And then there's this whole other area of like health inequity and health disparities that how do I make sure that my patients are getting the best quality care. So Erica, you can take either ends of that, that spectrum, but um, I'm, I'm curious to hear, have you thought through some sort of things that we should be advising our colleagues at our institutions to work towards in this moment? I mean, I feel like that topic alone could be an entire podcast, right? <laughs> I mean, there's so much there. There's so much to do. I think I similarly sort of think about it, I think, in two, in two buckets. The first is sort of addressing implicit bias, right? And I think there are, there's a number of ways to do that. First and foremost, I think diversifying storytelling to me has been such a powerful tool over the last few months that has been leveraged, you know, largely using social media platforms. But we hear the same narratives in medicine over and over again, and it perpetuates the same um, implicit biases. And I think 
diversifying perspectives, diversifying the storytellers, sends a message that there are different ways to be a, do a doctor. There are, um, and yet, despite the fact that we're coming from different um, perspectives, we have a lot of common experiences. I think there's a lot of value to be learned there. DEI trainings for addressing implicit bias, I think are an important starting point. They give us a common framework and a common language. Um, the challenge there is that in most institutions, they are optional, right? And so the people who probably need it the most are less likely to opt in because it's just not a priority. So I think we have to really think a lot about how we use DEI trainings effectively. And then I think we also have to recognize that they're just the beginning, right? We have to cultivate an environment in which calling out explicit and implicit bias is encouraged or even expected. And that means it has to be a safe space for all people to be able to do that. I think that addresses implicit bias and it doesn't even begin to tackle explicit bias and institutional racism, which we know covers all components of, of, um, of our academic centers from medical training, hiring, promotion, and our clinical care, as you mentioned. And so I think there are, you know, a number of resources out there to help guide. And for me, the ones that are maybe most important, I think, is institutions having clear, meaningful goals that are tied to action and tied to clear metrics for success, right? I mean, we are in data-driven environments, and so we should leverage that expertise and recognize that we need to define the problem and then figure out how we're going to measure success. What does success, success mean like mean? And it often means more than just numbers. My division, yes, we know we need to increase the number of underrepresented minorities in our division, but we also need to create an environment in which current faculty and future faculty feel like they can thrive so that we retain them. So it's, it's, it's numbers and it's also evaluating the experience. I think there's been a lot of work to define inequities in medicine, right? And so there needs to be equal work at this point in de uh, designing, implementing, and evaluating interventions to address those inequities. And that includes anti-racist curricula, and it includes targeted mentorship programs. I'm gonna try to keep this list short, but I think there's, you know, as I'm talking, I think there's probably three more that I wanna mention, and that's one, diversifying leadership because representation matters. Community engagement, right? I think providing opportunities or setting an expectation that providers need to get proximate to the lived experiences of other people. If you have an alternative to the narrative that you've you know, been fed over and over again, if you, if you have a direct experience with someone that challenges that narrative, it helps to shine a mirror on your blind spots. Um, and it also, I think, creates a bigger responsibility and connection to the people that you're caring for. And then I think lastly, it's recognizing and valuing this work. There is so much work to do. I mean, I think I tried to limit the number of things that I could mention. I could probably double that list if given the time, but there's so much work to do that it has to be recognized and valued. And I would give a shout out to my division at doing this. I think we've recognized that as a division, we, have, we want to prioritize, prioritize DEI work. We want to address institutional racism that is present in our division. And so um, leadership has defined a position, a leadership position, and given it protected time and resources to lead that work. And I think we need to start valuing it. And I, you know, I agree with Christian that we have to recognize that there are rules that, there, that are there that we have to sort of play by the playbook in some ways, but we also have an opportunity right now to rewrite that playbook in some places. And I think we need to leverage those opportunities. Excellent, excellent points. I could not agree with you more. Chantal, do you have anything to add to that list? <laughs> uh, not, not particularly. I think Erica hit it, hit the nail on the head. I, I think, I think the only thing I would add, and it's, and it might be a little unique to New York hospitals, and you probably know where I'm going with this, is addressing the obvious institutional racist practices of some institutions which are segregated um, segregated clinics. And so 
to me, that's like an obvious one at my institution. And I know a lot of other institutions in New York have these segregated clinics, one for private or commercial payers and one for Medicaid payers. And it's drastically, wildly different in terms of access to their physicians. And it's it's just, it's outright wrong and, and causes so much disparities in care for our patients that come from black and brown communities. And so I think when I first came to Sinai is when I realized like this is this is not normal because I came from a hospital. I did my training at Baylor and we just had one clinic and it was just so normalized here. And I think, you know, after talking to more and more people that were practicing in the two practices or practicing in the two clinics, just talking about it started, you know, the conversation like this is not normal, this is not right, and it's obviously causing an issue for our patients. Um, and so this year, of course, now that the climate around racism has changed so much, now it's like a big conversation. And now I think, you know, our the leader, the leaders of the hospital administration, and obviously like all the physicians are finally having like serious conversations and on how to dismantle this clear, you know, systemic racist practice that happens at our hospital. And so I think it's so important to, to, to address all the things that Erica mentioned, but I think there's also some obvious systemic um, practices that hospitals have that impact care that also need to be addressed. And I think it, it, it starts with us just, you know, calling it out what it is. It's not separate payer, it's a racist practice. Um, and regardless of how it makes the finances of the hospital a little bit easier and simpler, it's just not right. And so, you know, when I talk about it, I don't talk about it, oh, like, this is just what we do. Like, this is a wrong and racist practice that we do here. And every platform I get to talk about it at Sinai, any meeting I'm at, I'm bringing it up so that people continue to like, understand that this is just not normal. If there's one thing I think this sort of reinvigorated uh, Black Lives Matter conversation and, you know, all of this newfound interest in sort of addressing these issues has brought out in myself, it's sort of the empowerment to call it out, you know, when we see it, to not be afraid to sort of say like, hey, this is wrong. And that goes for implicit bias and microaggressions and issues that clearly set up our patients to have disparate outcomes. We need to be the voice to call it out. And thankfully, I feel a little bit more comforted in this current environment that I won't necessarily be shot down for speaking up. I think that's really, really important. And it doesn't need to be only the black or brown person in the room that calls it out, anybody can call it out. I think that's really, really important. So thank you so much for bringing that up, Chantal. Um, so in our final few minutes together, I sort of wanna make sure that we um, end a little bit on a brighter note and <laughs> think about um, sharing with others some of the strategies that we, we touched on this a little bit, Christian, uh, earlier on, but some of the strategies that we have found to sort of help us navigate as one of the onlys in our um, academic environments. I know for me personally, I think peer mentorship has really been a source of um, support and I've learned so much more from my peer mentors, possibly than maybe some of my senior mentors in terms of how to navigate difficult situations and conversations, strategies for success. How are other people doing it and being successful? And peers being a wide diverse group, I think that's where you can sort of get the most. So Christian, maybe you can start us off with just a few um, strategies that you have found to be particularly helpful. Oh, definitely, Stephanie. I think the first thing is the awareness. You have to be aware of the volatile nature of discussing or thinking about race uh, wherever you are. So that awareness, uh, even though might appear to be a negative or a drag, but it is important because that is what keeps you focused on what you need to do. The reason I bring this up is because, you know, discussing race, especially in academia, is one of those topics that we just don't want to address, right? It's you know brushed uh, over, it's swept under the rug. And when you are the only one, you 
you know, when it's convenient, you can be co-opted to feel okay, but you're really not fully embraced and you're not fully honest. And so always being aware that it is, we, we are obviously in a better place today. We can talk about those things more, but we still have a long way to go. So that awareness is critically important. The second thing is, you know, getting the right mentors, but also learning from people that look like you who have made it. Now, it does not mean that you are going to follow exactly uh, what they did or how they did it, because we already talked about it. Everyone has a unique path. Everyone is different. But there are lessons that you can learn uh, from talking to those uh, seniors, people who've been there, and just having a casual conversation. I, I did this a lot during fellowship because we had, when I was at Johns Hopkins, we had quite a few uh, African-American professors in the division and the department. And even though they weren't directly my mentors, I would just have a conversation over coffee and just ask them how, you know, how is your grant? How is your lab? How do you do it? How do you manage them? not directly asking them for mentorship, just having a conversation. And I was always very impressed at how much they would give to you for free by just having that honest conversation. And, and partly, and now that I think about it, being a more senior person in the department now, it, it, it's actually one of those conversations that you know they are looking forward to. They're hoping for someone to ask them uh, because they always felt so comfortable and so happy that someone reached out to have this conversation. So it goes a long way. And, you know, in that process, without putting too much pressure on them, without coming across as seeking direct mentorship, you get a lot out of that casual conversation. I love that, Christian. I always say that I, in my next career, I want to be a sociologist because I just love talking to people and hearing their stories and figuring out how did they get to where they got, you know, what is their path? And I feel like we can learn so much from one another through speaking to one another. Chantal, do you want to share with us some of your strategies for success and how you've navigated academia as a woman of color? Uh, I think what's been the most helpful is finding, you know, my the peer mentors that I can relate with and that I could be myself around and people that want that I can check in with. You know, I have like two or three women here that are in pediatrics and they're they're both black and Caribbean and we can just sit and check in with each other. We don't really have to have anything specific to talk about, but every few weeks we'll just like check in, like how are things going? And more often than not, even though like we haven't said, oh my gosh, I'm having a terrible day, more often than not, like there are things that we need to get out and just discuss and have a, 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 a safe place to just kind of like complain about something, you know, something someone said or some issue you're dealing with and not knowing how to approach, you know, you know, your boss or your chief or something like that. It's just, I have found that having that space to discuss like anything and feel super comfortable and not judge has been very helpful for me because I've been able to get answers to questions that have helped me um, navigate the, the leadership position that I have that I probably wouldn't have asked, you know, Dr. Vicente, who who is my mentor and I trust, but there's just certain things that I feel more comfortable asking, you know, my peer mentors that look like me and have had similar experiences and on on navigating um, administrative administrative things and so I I found that that has worked for me so far um, just having a space to be myself and vent because I think I I, I think a lot of us we walk around and all these things may happen throughout the day and throughout the week and we just kind of like bottle it up and put it somewhere so that we can get through the day and it's nice to just kind of unload it in a space where you know you're supported. I think that's right. And, you know, not only finding space to connect with one another as a method of offloading, but I think, you know, people talk all the time about self-care, but I also think about having a life outside of work is self-care and finding opportunities to engage with people I love outside of my work family um, is another way to sort of kind of give yourself a break. What about you, Erica? What are some of your strategies? I know you said that you're pretty early on in your academic career as an assistant professor, but I'm sure you've already established a few strategies. 
Yes, there's some that are, the couple that are probably a work in progress, and maybe the biggest one is establishing boundaries, right? I think your, your point, Stephanie, to having a life outside of your work and um, cultivating that life is important. And so um, it emphasizes the importance of learning how to say no and having a mentorship committee to help you help you do that effectively. I think I also, like Chantal mentioned, have really benefited from peer mentorship. And I think one, you know, unintended benefit of everyone being forced to transition to a virtual platform is the opportunity to connect with this broader community that social media platforms really offer that. And there is widespread engagement in a way there wasn't before. So I had, you know, I shut down Facebook, shut down, um, Instagram, I opened a Twitter account and had never used it. And yet now I'm on Twitter because things like, you know, the black and black in the ivory feed where people were just sharing experiences. I remember holding my phone and just in tears, hearing stories that just resonated in a way and, and recognizing that there were, there was a community out there that I could tap into that was bigger than my division, bigger than my department, bigger than my institution. I think I get a lot of power and strength from that. And I think the last thing is um, cutting down on code switching. You know, I think probably all of us have learned to do that out of necessity. Yeah, I grew up in a um, interracial marriage. And so, or my, I am from an interracial marriage. And so I code switched all the time, just going back and forth between sides of my family. It's something just innate. And I do it at work all the time. And I think it was reaching a point where I said, you know what, I am just going to, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop doing it all the time. I'm going to prioritize honesty and I'm going to speak up. And I, um, I think that the environment, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, I think the um, increased feeling of there being a safe space in academia to do this has helped that. And it also just takes a weight off to just be able to say what you mean and mean what you say all the time. I love that, Erica. That is wonderful. I have to thank you all so much. This has been such a great conversation. I think we could sit together for another hour, given the time, because there's so much to talk about. And hopefully we can put together future podcast series on speaking about some of these very, very important topics. So Erica, Chantal, Christian, thank you for joining me today. Thank, thank you. Take care. Have a great afternoon.